0: I may have drank too much caffeine this morning. Daniel told me I was moving a little quickly. I will apologize. Um, I would report rather than moving quickly, the clock was moving quickly. And uh, I was trying to keep up, but... Okay. Um, <laughs> any, uh, any questions or any points to discuss? Oh, in the back there. Donna, yeah. Okay. I'm not sure how to say this. Um, you were talking about the circumcision. Mm-hmm. And does everybody, man and women. Male only. No, no, no. Oh, sorry. I'm Hang sorry. On yeah, I, I, um, do they all have a circumcision of the heart also? Yes. Yes. Would you just in a brief way explain circumcision of the heart? Sure. Um, let's uh, let's look at a couple of testament passages, and then let's look at a new one. Um, in three major prophetic books, a my short answer to your question: circumcision of the heart is something like being made alive spiritually, uh, being regenerate, being born again, being um, quickened by the Spirit. Other other, I think, biblical metaphors would be having ears literally dug out. The thought being that they're clogged, they're dug out, having a veil removed. These are all, I think, biblical metaphors of the same reality. Um, So if you look in Deuteronomy, where we were looking, as God says, he himself will do it, which is an indicator that this is something that we must do, but we are unable in our own ability to do. He gives us some of the uh, the things, the consequences that come with it. So Deuteronomy 30, uh, verse 6. The Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that, or with the result that, you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. So, the result, circumcision of the heart enables, produces a genuine, sincere, and enduring love for God. Um, go to Ezekiel. No, go to Jeremiah. Go to Jeremiah. Um, our small groups going through Jeremiah, which is a delight. Now, Jeremiah, the early chapters are heavy, right? Now, Lee's got to cover her. But peppered in, Jeremiah, and especially more in the second half, there are um, promises of the new covenant. Go to Jeremiah 4. Same language. In Jeremiah 4, verse 4. Um, we'll go back, actually go to verse 3. For thus says the Lord to the men of Judah and Jerusalem, Break up your fallow ground, and sow not among thorns. Circumcise to the Lord. Circumcise yourselves to the Lord, remove the foreskin of your hearts, O men of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem, lest my wrath go forth like fire. And so there's again the same command, the same demand. He's speaking to Israelites who are externally circumcised, like you need to circumcise your hearts, and this gets picked up again and again in Deuteron- in, uh, in sorry, in Jeremiah. So turn to uh, chapter 6. we will mention it again. Verse 10. Um, and again, now it, this helps again broaden out why I think it connects with ears that hear and eyes that see. 10. To whom shall I speak and give warning that they may hear? Behold, their ears... Are uncircumcised, they cannot listen. Behold, the word of the Lord is to them an object of scorn, they take no pleasure in it. So, another doing it negatively and positively, an uncircumcised ear, and I think an uncircumcised heart is one that does not pay heed to God's word. Flip that positively, a circumcised heart or a circumcised ear then would be one that has an ear to hear, which is why I link it with Jesus saying, Eyes that see and ears that hear, um, the word of God. The next place Jeremiah picks this up is in chapter 9. Um, I mean, it's a great question I saw, and I'm just trying to do a biblical ex- survey. What, what is he talking about? And so in, in chapter 9, um, ooh, where is it? Um, yeah, 25. No, I start in 23. Jeremiah nine twenty-three. Thus says the Lord... Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. And I think many of you guys know Wanna? I've learned this, right? Is this an Oana verse ever? No? Yes? Okay. I don't know. It was, I memorized this when I was in Word of Life. Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts, boasts in this. That he understands and knows me. For I am... I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will punish all those who are circumcised merely in the flesh Egypt, Judah, Edom, the sons of Ammon, Moab, and all who dwell in the desert, who cut the four corners of their hair. For all these nations are uncircumcised, and all those of the house of Israel are uncircumcised in heart. So here, He's equating circumcision with knowing him and being known by him. And he's making this shocking statement to the Jews. You're no different than those uncircumcised neighbors of yours that you look down on with contempt. Your hearts are all the same. Externally, you may be circumcised, but internally, you're all cut from one cloth. And I'll pour my wrath out on all of you. So when Paul makes this point in Ephesians, and, and I didn't have time to go into all this then, this is not a new concept or a new phrase when he talks about circumcision externally only. There's a rich Old Testament thread that's highlighting this reality. So it's not like Paul comes along and says, hey, guess what? I know you thought it was external that mattered, but nope, not really. The, many of the Jews of his day did think that, but the Old Testament itself is clear on that point. Paul's not saying anything new when he highlights the insufficiency of external man-made circumcision. It's not good enough. It's not sufficient. And then, to make the point, in um, chapter thirty, where is it? Thirty-one. Yeah, that one. Jeremiah thirty-one. We get the same answer we got in Deuteronomy. Well, we're going to start before that. Hold on. Let's start in verse 3. This is, see, this is some of the good stuff that's coming, I think in our next small group meeting, we're actually going to get to here, maybe. We'll see. So I, don't, I want to, after all of the heavy, like, you guys really stink. No, seriously, let me tell you how much you, like, no, you don't get it. You st- really? Like, stink? Real bad. And that's like the first 30 chapters of Jeremiah. Um, by the way, which suggests our problem is not low self-esteem, but high self-esteem. Um, He's not spending 30 chapters telling them how, how special they are. He's telling them 30 chapters, like, no, I mean it. You guys are provoking me, and you're wicked. Like, no, really. Anyway, verse 3. The Lord appeared to him far away. I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, I continue my faithfulness to you. Again, I will build you, and you will be built O virgin Israel. Um, and so he's turning the corner in Jeremiah about the, the, what they've done. So now go to 31. 31, 31. This is the new covenant. This is what Jesus says he purchases by his blood. This is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. This is the only Old Testament passage I'm aware of that names new covenant. Here it is. book of Hebrews chapter 8 is going to do a pretty extended um, contrast between this and the old covenant. But here is the new covenant. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant made their fathers. So we're contrasting this continuity, distinction. The new covenant is going to be different from the old covenant in a couple of key ways. Now, there's similarities. It's always going to be by grace through faith. That doesn't change. Paul's going to make that point in spades in Romans and Galatians. But a difference between the old covenant and the new covenant, here we go, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke Though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I'll make with the house of Israel. After those days, declares the Lord. I'll put my law within them. I'll write it on their hearts. I'll be their God. They shall be my people, and they shall no longer each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I'll forgive their iniquity and I'll remember their sins no more. Now, he doesn't specifically name circumcise their heart, but he talks about writing something on their heart. I think, again, we're still talking about the same thing. In a book that's made it clear, you need your heart circumcised. Your heart isn't circumcised, but there's going to come a day, I'm going to write my law in your heart and I'm going to give you a new covenant. And here, it's going to be, again, knowing God and faithfully walking in his, his statutes. That's going to be the hallmark. The, your fathers didn't. They perished in the wilderness. But I'm going to, in the coming days, write my law on your heart. And uh, I will be their God. They'll be my people. They shall no longer each one teach his neighbor and his brother, saying, know the Lord. They shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest declares the Lord. And I'll forgive their iniquity. I'll remember their sins no more. So I think all of that gets tied up in having a circumcised heart. We could do the same study through Ezekiel. Where Ezekiel, he makes an even bigger claim. Ezekiel puts it this way. Rend for yourself and make for yourself a new heart and a new spirit. <laughs> Good luck with that one. And then, again, in Ezekiel, God's going to do that for you. And I will draw you in. I'll sprinkle fresh water upon you, and I'll cleanse you from all your iniquities, and I'll put my spirit within you, and a new heart I will give you, and I'll cause you to walk in my statutes, just not for your sake, O house of Israel, to do this, but for the sake of my name. That's the Ezekiel 36 passage. Again, same similar demand. You need an internal shift and change. You need an internal adjustment so that you love God and you hear his word, and your heart is tender, and I think all that's caught up in the circumcision of the heart. Having a or Psalm 51, having a broken and contrite spirit that hears and looks to God. Something, something like that would be what it means to circumcise your heart. Um, yes. Yeah. I, I think I would equate all of those. I mean, it may be that the biblical writers are highlighting slightly different aspects. I think if they're not identical, they're massively overlapping. Being born again, having the veil removed, having eyes that see and ears that hear, having a heart of stone replaced by a heart of flesh, um, having your heart circumcised, having the Lord put his spirit and washing you with water within you. All of these, I think, Titus talks about regeneration. That's his term. I think these are all ways of looking at the same biblical reality. Yes. Okay. Oh. Me. Yes. Uh, I just wondered the last uh, one on... Oh, into the mic. I can't I can't hear you.
1: <clears throat> Sorry about that. Oh, no, you're fine. Uh I'm on the C, the last one. I have God. Is that right?
0: Bef- become near. Become near. You were far off. You've become near. Oh, which one are you talking about?
1: The very bottom one, V or five. So
0: it's
1: the instruction from the the Lord on. Uh,
0: oh, what? God, God, C five. Yes. C five is God. Without God in the world.
1: That's what I had, but I wanted to be sure. Thank you. There
0: you go. Oh. I was just wondering on that, Jeremiah 31, do you think that's still to come? I know where it talks about, you know, you don't need to teach your neighbors or your relatives because they'll all know the Lord. Well, keep reading Jeremiah. For Jeremiah, he's talking about Israel, and... It's very clear that for Israel, this new covenant conversion is going to, I believe, to, well, I don't know, this is what our church, Jeremiah's going to link it with, uh, with the rebuilding of Jerusalem and the nation of Israel being established in the land. I mean, this is one of the reasons why I am um, solidly, solidly holding to um, what's called dispen- premillennial dispensationalism. There is a coming reign of Christ on earth, that will be centric geographically in the nation of Israel where physical Jews who are also believing Jews will have a place of prominence. You can can grab a copy of our doctrinal statement. That's what we teach. So here's the new covenant, which we share in, but in Jeremiah, just keep reading, right? So he's like, I'm going to make a new covenant with you. Verse 35. So for those of you who don't have it still open, Jeremiah 31. And Ezekiel does the exact same thing, by the way, um, when he talks about the new covenant doesn't name it, the new covenant. but So go from 34. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and I'll remember their sins no more. Thus says the Lord, who gives the sun for light by day and the fixed order of the moon and the stars for light by night, who stirs up the sea so that its waves roar, the Lord of hosts is his name. If this fixed order departs from me, from before me, declares the Lord, then... Shall the offspring of Israel cease from being a nation before me forever? Thus says the Lord, if the heavens can be measured and the foundations of the earth below can be explored, then I will cast off the offspring of Israel for all they've done, declares the Lord. Which is to say, never... I will never ultimately cast off the offspring of Israel. And so our understanding, I'll keep reading in a second, in in Paul's explanation in Romans 9-11, is that Israel has been disciplined and cut off for a time. The branches have been cut off, and these wild Gentile branches have been grafted in to the covenants of promise. But the Father fully intends to regraft Israel back in. And In our study through Zechariah, in chapter 12, verse 10, we, Zechariah depicts it as, in Israel's moment of crisis, the nations are gathered around. Then the Spirit of the Lord goes out, and they look upon me, whom they've pierced, and they'll mourn for him. There's this virtually near-national conversion. And then as a believing people, the Lord will come out and fight for them when a kingdom gets set up. So just keep going. Um, because some people want to take all this and spiritualize it. And I read this, and I'm like, there's just no way. There's no way anyone of Jeremiah's contemporaries would think this is talking... He's going to name gates and things. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the city shall be rebuilt for the Lord, from the tower of Hananel to the corner gate. That's just spiritually speaking about the church in Western... No, it's not. It's talking about the tower of Hananel and the corner gate getting rebuilt. And the measuring line, shall go out farther, straight to the hill of Gereb, and then she'll run to Goa. These are places you can find and identify and survey. The whole valley of dead bodies and ash and all the fields as far as the brook Kidron to the corner of the horse gate towards the east shall be sacred to the Lord. It shall not be plucked up or overthrown anymore forever. So as the promise is given to Israel, With this new covenant, which is what the New Testament picks up and says we're sharing in, is additionally this national restoration in the land. And we will participate in that. Christ talks about us ruling with him. But for Israel, when Israel's national... I mean, there's been a trickle of Jews into the church. But when the Lord does this sovereign work for Israel nationally, it will be closely accompanied with a kingdom that's set up and established in Israel. Um, So for us where the analogy I use is kind of like a a, a rich king disciplining his son and casting him out of the house for his rebellion, and then taking a street urchin and bringing him in, and we're in the kid's room and playing with his toys and sleeping in his bed. And and Paul even says God's doing that in a way, hopefully, to provoke Israel to jealousy, because the homegrown son walks outside and sees this street urchin in his bed, playing with his toys, and supposed to hopefully provoke him to want to return home. But the homeowner intends to bring his son home one day. He he does not intend to leave him out there. Something, as a clumsy analogy, something like that. But no, great question. Great question. Um, Oh, Jonah.
1: All right. Uh, Two questions, Jeremy. Yeah. One being in the opening statement you made, uh, you divided the chapter in half, and you assigned each chapter a very large word. Um, the, Contrast
0: f- which which word? I mean, uh, uh,
1: they were both, both very Latin in nature. It was the first time I ever really oh, heard.
0: Oh, sorry. Okay. So let me let me go over that again. The, the key concept, and you can break it down any way you want. Alliteration can be helpful for memorization, but it's not essential. There's a very clear division in when you do grammar and verbs. Verbs have um, a mood, and you can have an indicative or a voice: active, passive voice. Um, and verbs also can be indicative verbs. Verbs that t- An indicative verb indicates something that is. Um, a, an imperative verb gives a command. So if I can say, I am speaking to Jonah right now, that's just telling you what is. If I say, Jonah, look at me, that's a command, right? I'm not saying anything that is. I'm actually giving an, a command. In the first three chapters of Ephesians, what dominates the verbal tense is indicative verbs, what is. And what begins to dominate the second half of the book is Paul giving commands. So one way you could look at the division is indicatives and imperatives or orthodoxy, which is usually next to like truth claims. And orthopraxy, how you live, what you do. Um, or you could look at it as instruction and command, or instruction and exhortation. The key division is just getting the first three chapters going to be doctrine, or you could go doctrine and duty. There's a nice alliterated thing. Um, but in the first three chapters, here's the foundation of truth that is going to be necessary for the instruction of how to live in light of that truth. That, that's the div- so I'm just giving you four, five, six different handhold ways of what matters is, hopefully, getting the, the flow of the book. Um, because Paul doesn't start chapter 4 as chapter 1. What, what I mean is, we're going to get some really practical instructions. Like, take take husbands wife. Husbands, love your wives. But Paul doesn't say that until he's told them all the stuff we're going through first, which is to suggest, before a husband can really understand how to rightly love his wife, he's got to understand how he's been saved. He's got to understand how he's been joined Gentile to Jew in one body. Because all of Paul's instructions, how does a husband love his wife? Like Christ loves the church. Well, how does he do that? That's what we're studying right now. So the truth foundation that's the setup for all the instruction and, and, and imperatives that flow, flow, flow out of it come first. That's the notion. It's the division of the book. One to three, doctrine. Four to six, duty. They're all various ways of, of summing up the divisions. But that's, that's what I was trying to get at. If any of those work for you, great. If you want to come up with your own, that's fine. Um, I've just suggested four or five potential different ways. I'm a, I'm a word nerd, so the verbal moods interest me, so indicative and imperative. But it, you can do it any way you like. Um, that's just fine. Yeah, that's good.
1: And another one in Deuteronomy, in the verses, it said, circumcise your heart. Does that mean, like, in a way, cut away a part of the heart? And then it said, love the Lord your God with your whole heart, but part of your heart, isn't, wasn't that just cut
0: away? I think it's more the picture of. um, Okay, how do I say this? Let me switch to a different metaphor. It makes this clear. If you've got a, talks about having a hard or stubborn heart, is similar to having a callus. You got a callus that you cut away. What's revealed? Something tender, something soft, something that is um, it can feel. Circumcising your heart was the same sort of picture of the stubbornness or a hard heart. It's why you can talk about a heart of stone being replaced with a heart of flesh. The commonality here is not it's bigger or smaller than it was, but rather it's, it's more feeling. It's more um, sensitive and, and, and open and able to respond to, to God and his truth. I think that's more the, the, the way the metaphor works. As you look at the other metaphors, what's common in all of them, there's a sense of deadness, a sense of unfeelingness, a sense of uh, stubbornness and, um, that, that's removed. I think that's the idea. It's circumcising your heart. Make your heart tender. Make your heart able to feel its conscience and care about those things and not to be stubborn, dull, and dead, I think is the idea. Can I do yeah, yeah. a second one, or is that the no, limit? No, 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 you get
1: to go, you get to go. This um, is the last one, no. Yeah, go. yeah.
0: <laughs> um, just kind of with the circumcision, baptism connection, yeah. um, you know, there's some people that kind of make a case for infant baptism because, you know, yeah. the circumcision was, you know, your you know, on the eighth day, and then, you know, now circumcision is mm. replaced baptism, and I don't. You know, the passages I've been shown about that, I just don't really see justification for it. But maybe you can explain it in a way that (laughs) um, makes more sense. Well, I I don't believe in infant baptism, so I hope I don't make it make more sense. But I think I can can explain (laughs) what they're coming. Okay, So the basic argument from infant baptism, if you want to put it in simplicity, is what circumcision was, baptism is. And so then, what you're seeing is absolute continuity, and then the argument, I mean, in simplicity, there's a a debate between, it's not really a debate. If there's no cross-examination, it's not a debate. There's two contrasting lectures by MacArthur and Sproul that, amazingly, Ligonier Ministry, Sproul's ministry, puts out, because I think Sproul gets defeated soundly, so I'm surprised they publish it but you can get it i got a copy of it where macarthur a case for believers baptism and sprawl and if you boil down and i don't think i'm in any way um i don't think i'm in any way misrepresenting if you boil down the argument for, from baptism it's going to be along two lines the church has been doing this for a long long time this has been the practice of the church which is not a negligible argument it's not a victorious argument but don't just throw it out. I mean, I care what the church has believed over time, and, and you should care, because Jesus' sheep hear his voice. And so one of the reasons we accept the 66 books of the Bible is because Jesus' people, over the last 2,000 years, have uniformly and pretty exclusively heard his voice here. So it's not a triumphant argument, but the, so they'll make a big church history argument, um, which is not compelling, but hey. And there's a lot of debate, a lot of argument over the first couple centuries, but certainly... By the 3rd or 4th century, infant baptism is pretty much the view. Although that's largely because of their view of Christendom, of the union of the church and state. Um, The reason why the Anabaptists in the uh, 16th century were were getting, like the French Huguenots at the St. Bartholomew's Day Massacre, is that right? The reason they're slaughtered, if you're announcing your baptism, you're announcing your citizenship, it's sedition. Because it's the church and the state together. So if your baptism isn't... You were baptized into the English church and state, the German church and state. And so if you're announcing your baptism, that's treason, that's sedition. So part of the reason infant baptism took so, such a hold in the church is because of the view of Christendom, of the union of the two, church and state, um, would be part of it. But in the first century, there's a lot of debate over proper recipients of baptism. Um, but certainly, I'll, I'll certainly grant that by the third, fourth century, infant baptism is the, the dominant view. Um, <clears throat> so they'll argue a church history argument, but textually, in simplicity, they're going to argue from a absent, from a silence, and from theological continuity. From silence, they will say, nowhere are we told not to baptize babies. To which the response is, nowhere are we told. Or are we given an example? Now that's not as strong of an argument as you might think. We would expect the conversions in Acts to be first generation conversions. So we're not around to see what happens 20, 30 years later when those people, you know, or even a year or two later when those people are having babies, what they're doing. Um, they'll make a lot of the household baptisms. There's about three or four household baptisms in Acts. The Philippian jailer and all of his household believed they're gonna they're gonna want to plug and, and if we're simply doing it on that level, infants could be theoretically included in that household. You're not going to decide it one way or the other based on that. But that's going to be their argument. They're going to point to the household arguments. Um, But but the primary argument is going to be one of theological continuity. It is inconceivable to to uh, that that position that the new covenant is not superior and bigger. I once saw a meme um, that showed a kid asking his dad, hey, dad, we're going to baptize the baby he said, no, son, it's a newer and better covenant. He's out. <laughs> and they were mocking the notion um, that, or they're trying to tease the notion that how can you argue it's a better covenant if the old covenant included our kids, but the new one doesn't. That was the argument. So they're going to argue from continuity that the old covenant was to you and your children. Therefore, the new covenant has to be to you and your children, if not more. And they'll go to Acts 2. Let's, let's go to Acts 2. Um, And uh, they'll say, see, that's what Peter's preaching in Acts 2. I don't think he does, but I'll grant the prima facie um, might look like that. So, Acts 2.037. It's the end of Peter's sermon at Pentecost. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. which is an interesting tie-in to heart circumcision. They are cut to the heart. Um, I don't think Luke accidentally used that phrase, and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? So they've heard the message, they've believed, they have, um, they've received it, they've heard the indictment. And Peter said to them, repent, and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. You receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promise is to you and your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. With many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. They say, See, the promise is for you, the promises for your children. So we need to baptize our kids. And for those who are far off. So let's baptize them too. No, he qualifies it next, though, doesn't he? As many or everyone whom the Lord calls to himself. I don't think he's saying anything more than this this offer of salvation is for you, and it's for your kids, and it's for people far off, as many as the Lord calls to himself. Um, So the the problem then, if you go to Hebrews 8, let's go there. Hebrews 8 is where uh, the author of Hebrews examines um, the difference, the discontinuity between the two covenants. So the entire argument, the majority of the argument for infant baptism is, it's just the same as circumcision. We circumcised our kids and so um, we circumcise we baptize our kids the problem is we even read this morning you also circumcise your employees and your servants you baptize them too i mean these are the questions i'd ask somebody you know would you encourage somebody who has household servants if they became a christian to baptize them as well what if they're grown children would you baptize them your 18 year old unbelieving son but you became a christian you get a, you, if if he would submit to you if he'd say well i don't I believe in Vishnu, but if you want me to get wet, I'll get wet, Would you do that. You know. Um, those, are the, I think, those are some of the ways I try to press somebody on this, um, because we always want to picture a, a child who's not old enough to respond or resist or anything. like, OK, what if it's a grown child? What if it's a household servant? Because if, if the notion is baptism is what circumcision was, then it also must and if the argument is, therefore, we baptize whoever we'd circumcise, OK, who would we circumcise? And it would include grown children. It would, it would include um, household serves, servants and slaves. So we could to baptize them as well. Hey, but, Jer- uh, yeah, hey, oh. uh, hey Jeremy. Um, those who make
1: the argument that paedobaptism is now what
0: circumcision was, what do they do with the fact that male children were circumcised and yet, pedo baptism should be ostensibly for boys and girls. It's just a better covenant. How do they Bigger, answer that? Bigger, better covenant. Okay. See? It's better. Dif- Everyone's included now. Different, but. Which is better. what which, will work fine with them because what they're pressing against is any appearance of it being smaller, more restrictive, less broad. So they can go with it. it's, it's everything circumcision was and more they're fine with, it, but not less, which is, would be what they'd want to argue. I think it is more. Here's, here's the, so here's the, I'll look at, look at Hebrews 8 just a moment, but understand this. Being circumcised in Israel brought you into the Mosaic Covenant. It did not guarantee you salvation, but it did bring you into the Covenant. So under the Old Covenant, I, I watched a debate with uh, James White and Doug Wilson at the L.A. Um, Hilton um, Conference Center at the L.A. Airport. And James White beat Doug Wilson about the head with Hebrews 8. I mean, he just, it was like a dog with a bone. It was wonderful. I mean, these are good guys who are friends. And, but I mean, he just just relentlessly just went to Hebrews 8. Um, and it was, yeah. If you can look it up on YouTube, you can see me. I ask a question. And it was back before I, I'm just, hello, my name is Jeremy. And uh, I have a question. Anyway. Yeah, you can look me up. You can see the back of my head. I recognize that neck. Yep. Um, yep. Gotcha, mom. There we go. Okay, so um, sorry, it's an inside joke. So Hebrews eight and um, and 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 the the covenant, the, the difference is you could be a, you could be in the covenant by circumcision and go to hell. So when Israel is a disobedient nation, how does God identify them as a as a as a as a whoring and unfaithful wife? Never calls the Philistines that. In other words, he speaks to them as someone in covenant with him who's unfaithful. Right, that's that's the metaphor, an adulterous wife. So they are in the covenant of Moses. They're not in the covenant of Abraham. That's a distinction, right? So the covenant of Moses, as Paul in Galatians, is founded upon the covenant with Abraham. The covenant of Abraham is Abraham believed God and was counted as righteousness. And then, in chapter seventeen, we saw this morning circumcision comes in. Um, but you could be in the covenant by circumcision, be a covenant breaker, and perish and go to hell. And the new covenant, you can't. And this is the point. So the, so the counter-argument would be this. We should give the sign of the covenant to whom everyone to whom we believe this is true. So let's look at the discontinuity, the difference between the old covenant and the new covenant, as the author of Hebrews makes clear in Hebrews 8. So verse 6. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old um, than the old, as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. For if the first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. So if the first covenant was good enough, there'd be no new covenant. But there is a new covenant. So right there, implicitly, is some statement of the insufficiency, the inadequacy of the old covenant. For he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the, the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers. We're about to see dissimilarity, discontinuity, distinction, right? There's a lot of ways we could say the covenants are similar. It's all of grace, it's only to people of faith. Those are similarities. Same God. Similarities. Here, the author is about to highlight the dissimilarity. How are they different? Here we go. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant. So the first distinction is, you could be circumcised and walk in the old covenant for a while, and then you could stop walking in it and die in the wilderness and never get to the promised land. That's one difference. So by implication, if you're part of the new covenant, you're staying in the new covenant. Um, Not like, for they did not continue my covenant and I showed them no concern declares the Lord for this is the covenant I'll make with the house of Israel after those days declares the Lord I will put my law in their minds so if you're a member of the new covenant you have an internal law okay so the question asks is do you think this baby has the law of God on their heart like that let's keep going and write them in their hearts, I will be their God, they shall be my people. They shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, for I'll be merciful toward their iniquities, and I'll remember their sins no more. So here's the point James White was making. to Doug Wilson, if you're part, a member of the new covenant, you know God, your sins are forgiven, and no one has to teach you who God is. So the very act that Presbyterians or Good guys I love we will see in heaven. I mean, this is not, an, this is, I think, an issue the Bible is clear on, but it's not an issue to fight over. But I get why we have different churches, because, you know, if, if when the twins were born, half the elders were trying to get some water and half the elders weren't, we'd have some conflict. So I get why people that disagree on this are probably going to need to gather in, in, in different um, local churches just so there's not the chaos that would happen, But, but... So on the one hand, I want to say, I think it's clear. I don't think it's an issue like, you know, get in fights and to call people heretics over. But if we, the very act of our Sunday school right now going on, telling our kids who God is, is a declaration they don't know God. And I'd want to say to Doug Wilson and my reform friends, if you're teaching your kids who God is, the very act of doing that is you acknowledging they're not in the covenant. Because what's one of the call marks of the new covenant? They shall not, each one teach his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, know the Lord. So if you're teaching your kids, hey, know the Lord, guess what you're tacitly acknowledging? You're not part of this covenant yet. For I will be, they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, for I'll be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. So the way White put it was the new covenant, unlike the covenant with Moses, is perfectly salvific. Every member of the new covenant is saved, forgiven, knows God, and will not fall away. And that's a whole lot better than the covenant with Moses. So even though the covenant with Moses may have been broader, and you could bring your kids into it without their consent. It didn't guarantee them blessings. So the covenant with Moses put on the table blessings and cursings. Go to the end of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 29, 28, 27. You're the blessings, you're the curses. And if you're faithful to the covenant, if you believe God, trust it, you, you, you get these blessings. And if you're not, you get these cursings. It doesn't guarantee you blessings. It just makes you um, available and open to the blessings and the cursings at the end of Deuteronomy. And so, yeah, you can bring your kids into that. And if their kids are unfaithful, they get called God's adulterous wife. And you can read the the early chapters of Ezekiel and see what good that does them. In the New Covenant... Everyone who's in the new covenant knows God, has his law in their hearts, has been forgiven, and will not fall away. And if you think your infant child, that's true of them, then I guess we should baptize them. I, I don't think that's the case. Um, I, I intend to, to teach my twins, if the Lord lets them come forth, um, who God is. And I'm not going to assume, well, I already know him. And, and because of this point, if you press some of the Presbyterians and some of the, the guys on this point, they'll even, well, maybe my kids are regenerate. You my kids do know who God is. And I think the danger of that type of thinking is you're going to minimize preaching the gospel to your kids. I, no, Some of my consistent friends in this will say, wouldn't a charitable judgment be to think they're Christians until they show they're not? That's not hyperbole. That's, that's absolutely the position. Now, of course, now, they're not going to say they're not going to. We're, they're going to tell them what the family believes. But you're not treating it as an urgent matter. They're not treating it as life or death because they're working on the default assumption that until evidence shows otherwise, I'm assuming my children are regenerate. I'm assuming my children are in the covenant. I'm assuming my children do love the Lord. And, and to be honest, there's a little bit of, I, not to, okay, time, we're good. To, to be honest, there's a little bit that makes sense of this. My children, I have no doubt, my kids have, will, will say they believe what I believe. If I tell them a large, obese, Caucasian, bearded man's going to come down the chimney on December 25th, they will believe me. If I tell them that a bunny wants to hide eggs, chicken eggs, around the house, they will, if I tell them there's a magical fairy who wants to buy their teeth, they will believe me, right? And so I tell them Jesus Christ died for their sins, they will believe me. Can that be real belief? Sure it can. And so I, I, I can't imagine, and maybe there are some scenarios, I can't imagine there wouldn't be a child at two or three who isn't confessing Christ at some level. Um, and so uh, that 's the type of stuff they 'd point to well, of course, all these kids aren 't they just showing there 's no resistance there 's no yes but what about they just they, they believe isn 't it wonderful? It is wonderful and let 's let 's give some time and some space like a greenhouse to let that grow and let that flourish and let that bear some fruit um, you know so that 's what they 're going to say that 's what they 're going to press you so in 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 faithful. Um, Pado baptist positions. They're not going to not, not preach the gospel of their kids, but they're certainly going to treat them as though they're in the covenant, and, and they're going to by default do that. Wouldn't that be the charitable judgment? I mean, after all, John the Baptist is filled by the Holy Spirit, and John the Baptist jumps in the womb. And it, It's possible. It, it, an unborn child can be regenerate. We've got at least one example. I'm not claiming that for my kids. <laughs> oh. Go to, hold on. One, let me finish... Oh, just, sorry, I haven't looked over here okay can i can we talk out okay, what
1: in the book of job um he talks a lot about oh, believing so. in God yeah. and devil this devil and made a bet with God, and you know the story of Job, don't you all yeah. and um. What he's been through, and he was probably baptized, right, Jeremy?
0: So, no, baptism. Didn't but
1: it doesn't matter. He still believed in God. And what he's been through, he got boils on his back and got everything taken away from him and all his cattle and all that stuff, yeah. he still believed in him with trust and hope and faith with yeah. all his heart. Yeah. And I'm wondering in um at the where it says hope at the very end. Yes, no hope. Fine. Do you believe there should be hope in there?
0: Yes, as best as we can tell, Job lived before God made the ethnic extinction between Israel and the rest of the nations. And there are examples of some men um, like uh, Jethro, uh, Moses' father-in-law, like Melchizedek, priest of God most high in Salem, like Job, who are not Israelites, who yet have some relationship and and knowledge of an interaction with God? You
1: know Samuel, where he has to grow his hair. As long as he keeps his hair long, he um, he keeps his power.
0: You're talking about Samson, the judge. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. What what I'm what I'm saying, and then we got to stop for time. We can talk afterwards, but we're over time. What I'm saying is. In the, in the course of history, God... There's
1: this wonderful verse in the book of Job. It's like, really touches my heart. And you probably all sing, um, God's not dead. And the passage, he, this pretty um, guy says... He says it in the book of Job. And um, it's like, well, he gets to me.
0: Mm. Well, well, let me talk to you afterwards. I'm going to dismiss everyone because they got to get their kids. You are dismissed, and then we will chat.